Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to be reading um, verses 1 through 4. So we'll read and then we'll pray. It says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And we're going to continue. Uh, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall uh, see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are, you when, uh, blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Right? So th- these are Jesus' foundational words for us. So uh, bow your heads with me and we'll pray before we start. Father, um, We appreciate your presence, Lord, and we appreciate that you are not a God that uh, remains unknown. You didn't decide to just just remain in the clouds apart from us, God, on a mountain where we can't reach you. Uh, You came down to us. You dwelt among us. Uh, You are here and you are present, and you are ready to reveal yourself, God, if we are willing to understand who you are. And so, Father, I, I, I pray that we would be um, humble enough to receive the gift of just simply knowing you. Um, Help us with that tonight. I pray that scales would be removed from our eyes. I pray that uh, the veil would be removed from our hearts, Lord, and that we'd be able to see you, as you say in your word, with a pure heart. Um, Help us, Jesus. Help me, God. Um, One of the most sinful people in this room, God, and and I need your word to guide me. And so, Father, I I pray that you would help us and you would restore us tonight. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, so as I said, guys, we're starting our fight. Uh, it's just a, a few week series through the Beatitudes. Now, the Beatitudes, guys, um, they are very foundational uh, for every Christian to understand what it means to be blessed, right? What does it mean to be blessed? Because we hear that word a lot, huh? Right? Where do we see it the most? Where do we see blessed the most? Yeah, come on, say it. You're allowed to say it. Yeah right? Hashtag blessed. Like that's where we see it the most. Honestly, that's, that's where we see this word the most. In this sermon uh, that was taught to Jesus's small group of disciples, it says that he saw the multitudes, right? So he saw these thousands of people surrounding him to come and see him and hear from him. And he's like, this is too many people. I want, I want to bring my disciples up here, right? Because they're the ones who are going to be uh, game changers, right? They're, they're going to be the ones that change the world. So he saw the multitudes and he's like, do you know what? I'm going to take the few up here and I'm going to teach them what it means to be blessed so that they can teach everybody else, right? So uh, Jesus was teaching and he was pouring into a select group of people so that they would be properly equipped to minister to everybody else. And Jesus' first actual sermon to them These super close disciples, his first actual sermon to them was telling them what it truly means to be blessed. And we in our culture have that that air about it. We have that hashtag blessed, right? 
We have that hashtag blessed. We, you know, and, and I actually looked at, um, I, I just, you know, just before this hashtag blessed, and I, I looked it up and I saw a picture of a football player on his knees, right? After a win, right? I saw a football player on his knees after a win. And then I scrolled down a little bit and it was a newborn baby hashtag blessed. And then I scrolled down a little bit and I had to get through a lot of selfies, right? You know, I don't count selfies. There's just too many of them. Right. And then, and then I had to get, I got to a, a newly married couple, hashtag blessed. I got to someone who just finished a hike, hashtag blessed, right? A lot of pictures of women silhouetted in the sun, like doing those weird leaps with the sun in the background. You know what I'm saying? Right. We see all those, right? Those hashtag blessed pictures. And, and those are all the pictures that, that I see and that I saw when I looked it on, uh, looked at it on Instagram. Right. And so Blessed in our culture, guys, it, it seems to be associated with happy circumstances, right? That's what it means to be blessed, is to be in a happy circumstance. And, and we look on social media and see those couples kissing or the newborn babies or the one football game or the trendy beach photos, right? We, we look at all these things and we look at it on our phones. We look at these couples kissing or climbing mountains. All the while, we had just gotten done with like a five-hour Netflix binge and you're still in your pajamas and you had ice cream for breakfast maybe and you're just already feeling sick about your life. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's sometimes how I feel when I look at all of these pictures of how blessed other people are. Right? It, it's sometimes it's, it's out of like, I, I'm already hating myself for whatever stupid thing I've done that day. Right? And I, I'm already shouldn't be on my phone. I should be being productive with my life. Right? And, and I'm looking at this and I'm seeing all of these happy people, you know, on Instagram and on Facebook. And I refuse to use Snapchat. Pastor Mark seems to love it. Right? Yeah, just wait. He says that. Um, but it seems to us, because we know our circumstances and all we can see is everyone else's, what, what they choose to post. It seems like everyone else might be hashtag blessed, but us, right? That's sometimes how it feels, right? It's sometimes how it feels. And the disciples at this time, the disciples that Jesus was pouring into at this time uh, felt the same way, Right? They felt the same way. Now, now they weren't seeing a bunch of these, you know, trendy beach photos, right, on their computers, right? That, that, that wasn't them. However, however, the disciples, they were fishermen and tax collectors, meaning that they were the lowest of the low. These people were like, they, they were low on the totem pole. And what they had to do every single day, they had to see these rich Roman soldiers gallivanting around in their gold-plated armor on their huge horse and just taking whatever they wanted, right? Nobody ever bothers them. No one messes with them. They make tons of money. They have huge houses, right? And so they have to watch all these Roman soldiers just taking whatever they want, right? And then on top of that, they have to look at these super holy religious people, right? They have to look at the really holy, the religious people who decide to like, and the Pharisees guys at this time, the Pharisees, not only did they memorize the entire Old Testament, like the entire Old Testament, but they also like wore robes of the Old Testament, like on, like printed on their robes. And they had these headbands that were attached to wooden planks. They would have scripture of the day on their wooden planks on their forehead. So they were literally wearing hashtag bless on their foreheads, right? 
And, and so they were trying to give this air of holiness and this, this awesome, like, oh, I'm so religious, I'm so perfect, right? They were trying to give this air about them that they were always blessed. And so the disciples, guys, they had to see this, right? They had to see everyone else who seemed more blessed than them, right? And that might be how you feel. It might not be. You guys might be in a really good spot in your life, maybe one of the best spots you've ever been in where you feel very blessed at the moment. And then some of you might not feel particularly blessed right now. You might be coming from a really hard season in your life. You might be feeling like everyone else has this blessedness about them. Because we in our culture, once again, we associate blessedness, we associate blessing and blessed with happiness or with good circumstances, with having a significant other, right? We associate it with conquering big hikes or going to the beach and always having free time to do whatever you want, right? That, that seems to us to be this blessed life, right? And, and Jesus speaks into this and tells us, and he tells his disciples what it really means to be blessed. What it really means to be blessed. And we start with the word blessed, guys. With the word, because it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? So that's automatically like something we can tell that the blessedness that Christ is talking about isn't necessarily the blessed we see on the computer, right? The blessed that we see on our phones, the blessed that we see everyone around us, right? The word blessed in the Greek is makarios, right? Makarios, it sounds like a Pokemon, right? Makarios, Okay, makarios is the word for blessed, and it simply means happy. That's all it means. It means happy, right? And so Christians love to make this distinction. Well, oh, there's a difference between happiness and joy. Well, blessedness here is, it, it means happy. That's what it means. And so when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he means happy are the poor in spirit. And then he says later on, blessed are those who mourn, meaning happy are those who mourn, which totally seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? Right? Happy are those that are sad. Right? And, and, and so Jesus, he opens this up and he says, makarios. And makarios is the same word that we see in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11, where he says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust, right? So Paul talks about the makarios God, the blessed God, the blessed God. And so when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he means he, he's talking about a blessed that is the same blessed as God is blessed. The same happy as God is happy, right? And, and, and so this, this opens up a whole new world to us. So the blessed, as Jesus calls the poor in spirit, blessed is to have this blessedness or happiness of God. It means to have a happiness like God that is untouchable. A joy that is untouchable. This type of happiness or blessedness, like God, cannot be altered by changing circumstance. God is outside of time. God is outside of space. He is unable to not be phased by circumstance or outside, um, or outside variables, right? Nobody can affect the blessedness of God. He is untouchable. And so when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he means happy are the poor in spirit. It means it's this type of happiness that exists 
and this type of joy that exists that is not affected by whatever else is surrounding you at the moment. It's a type of happiness that is not affected by whatever is around you. To bring this home, guys, to bring this home to what we were talking about, it means that I am able to post a picture of my grandmother with cancer or me crying after an argument with my wife or a text after a bad breakup or, or whatever it may be. It fill in the blank for whatever. I'm allowed to post a picture of that and still put hashtag blessed. That's the type of blessed God's talking about. Not this, it's a super happy circumstance right now. It's more of this circumstance. It's despite the circumstance, there's still this blessedness and this joy and this happiness going on. So, so you can, you can have your grand, you can be with your grandmother who is healthy and is giving you tons of wisdom and food, right? And, and you could be blessed, but you could also be at her bedside and be blessed at her bedside when she's sick. It's the you could be blessed either way. This type of joy is an ever present joy that is not dictated by good times or by bad times. It is like Christ, steadfast and unchanging. And it does not say, I just, I just want to point this out, guys. I want to point this out to you. I really want you to notice this. It doesn't say blessed will be those who are poor in spirit. And we'll get to what poor in spirit means later. But it doesn't say blessed are those who will, will be blessed if they do this. Or they will be blessed if they do this in the future. Or they will be blessed if they endure this. It said blessed are those who are currently this. It is a present tense. It is a present state of being. And so a lot of us, when we look to the future... We see the future as the point in time where we will finally be blessed. So whatever future job you have for yourself or your future of graduating, right? That seems to never come, right? I'm with you. Or, or this future with a, with a woman or a man that you adore or this future without this struggle or without this or being healed of this. When we think of blessed sometimes, we think of a future state of being. But what Jesus is saying is that blessedness is a present tense. I don't know if any of you have uh, read the book Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. It's an amazing book. I, I, I really suggest the Screwtape Letters to anyone um, who desires to just function well as a Christian. Um, it's an amazing book. And, and, and in this book, C.S. Lewis, um, he plays the, uh, he plays the um, character Screwtape, who is a demon. Right, Screwtape is a demon, and he's he's writing to his uh, younger nephew Wormwood, right? Um, and and he's he's teaching him how to tempt man, right? And so, don't take this as theologically accurate, right? It's like you know, demons aren't writing letters to each other, right? Um, but but it, it, he's he's telling them how you can take man away from God, right? He he's he's instructing his nephew on how you can take man away from God. And one of the tactics that he says right here is this. Lewis said that the enemy wants us to remain in the past or in the future. He says this, the present is the point at which time touches eternity, obeying the present voice of conscience, bearing the present cross, receiving the present grace, and giving thanks to the present pleasure. He instructs his nephew who wants to lead this man astray. He, he instructs him, hey, 
Always keep them in the past or in the future. Never keep them in the present. Always keep them dwelling on what he's done in the past or what was happened in the past. Or always keep he or she thinking about the amazing things that lie in the future. One is frozen and dead and the other doesn't exist. So keep them in the past or in the future, but never keep them in the present because the present is what's going to lead them to God. You will not live a blessed life if you're thinking, God will deliver me from this in the future. So I'll just wait for that. You will not be blessed if you think, well, it may not be what I want now, but maybe later God will give me finally what I want. That, that is not how to live a blessed life. The future doesn't exist yet for you. We don't live outside of time as God does. And dwelling on the past is just as bad as dwelling in the future because it's frozen and it's done with and it keeps you unable to exist now. I'll quote C.S. Lewis again. He says, the present is the point at which time touches eternity. Obeying the present voice of God, bearing the present cross, receiving the present grace, giving thanks to the present pleasure. Right here, right now, is the blessed time. It wasn't blessed back in the day. Not going to be blessed later. Now is the time to be blessed. And doesn't this sound like the type of blessed we want to be? Right? This sounds like the type of blessed that I want to be, not continually on this roller coaster of good times when the homework, when I have no homework, or bad times when there's too much, right? Or, or it's bad times when I'm having struggles at work, or it's good times when everything is fine and everyone around me is fine and there's no drama or arguments, right? It's, I, I don't want to be on this roller coaster where circumstances are always dictating my mood. That's tiresome, isn't it? It's so tiresome. It, 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 it is so, guys, it's the worst way to live. The worst way to live is to just continually be affected by the people around you and having them dictate how you feel that day, isn't it? It's the worst way to live. This type of blessed I would love to just be blessed and thrive in the present circumstance. I think you would too, right? And Jesus says that the first way to be this type of blessed is to be poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit. Now, like, what the heck does that mean, right? Some people just oversimplify it and they say humble, right? And that's, not, that's kind of what it means, but it's kind of, it, it, it's oversimplifying it a little too much, right? What does poor in spirit mean? And I, I would say, guys, that if, if being blessed is like a ladder, right, and we have to climb up the ladder, right? I, I want you guys to imagine really quick that for some weird reason, blessedness is a ladder, okay? That's, it's stupid. Just go with me, right? And at the very bottom, the very bottom row that you have to step on is the one closest to the floor, isn't it? Right? The one closest to the floor is the one you have to step on first. That's poor in spirit. You have to start low. You have to start with nothing. You have to start humble. That's the point. If blessedness is a ladder, you have to start at the bottom. You can't just go to the fifth. You can't just jump up onto the fifth row, right? 
So you have to start somewhere. And poor in spirit is Jesus's way of bringing us low before we climb this ladder of blessedness. And the foundation of being a Christ follower is realizing, one of, uh, realizing three things, guys. The foundation to being a Christ follower, we must realize three main things. One, you can't be blessed without this. You can't be a Christ follower without knowing these three things. One, that the creator God loves you. <laughs> There's a God who's created this world. And he loves you. He loves you so much. He is present in every aspect of your life. And he created you specifically to just be in community with you. You know, he just created you to be with you, right? Like that, you know, what's my purpose in life? It's be with God, right? So there is a creator God who is perfect in every way. He is present in every aspect of your life. And he created us to exist in relationship with him. This is the first thing we must know. And as you know, Guys, and as you know, a true loving relationship cannot exist without free will, right? Right? It's the difference between a date and a kidnapping. Yeah? Free will is the difference between a date and a kidnapping, right? So, so, so if God made you love him, right, and made you spend time with him, that's not, like, that's not a pleasant thing, is it? Right? If I made my wife go out with me, like drug her into the car, right? And took her somewhere, that's called kidnapping, right? That's creepy and bad, right? Free will is the difference between a loving relationship and an abusive one is free will. And so since God created us to be in relationship with him, but relationship cannot exist without free will. A true loving relationship cannot exist without free will. So God gave us free will. This is the first thing we must understand that he created us. He loves us, but he gave us free will to choose him. And we could choose not to. The second thing we have to know is that we have used our free will to run away from that relationship with God in any way, shape, or form. There can't be a person in here, and God bless you if you are. Man, I want to talk to you. But there can't be a person in here who says from the day they were born, they were perfectly pursuing a loving relationship with God, and they have never wavered ever in that. If you have reached that sort of perfection, right, please talk to me. Tell me your secret, or I will gladly correct you. But this is called sin. You know, I think some people, when we imagine sin, we imagine, oh, like these people here, sinners, like drunkenness, homosexual, all, all these, like, and we, we just imagine all these stupid, but sin, guys, is simply God wants to be in a loving, abiding relationship with you, and we don't want to be with him. That's sin. That is sin. That, that at its core is what sin nature is. It is that God wants to be with me. I sometimes want to be with him, Right? And so that's what sin is. And sin is simply defined, guys, by all the things we do to run away from God or the things we do, the things that we refuse to do to be close to him. So you can run away from him or you could just stand still and refuse to walk closer to him. Either way, it's sin. By doing so, we made it impossible for a love relationship with him. 
Because if God is perfect, he can't be with imperfect man, can he? Do you, do you, and I've said this before, maybe I sound like a broken record, but I'm going to say it again. Do you really want to worship a God who is, claims to be perfect, but just like lets any sort of sin into heaven, right? And that's my argument to those. Who are, well, it, you know, it doesn't matter. As long as you kind of your good outweighs your bad, you get to go to heaven. Well, I, I say that's, kind, that's, that's almost like just a kind of better earth, isn't it? Right? That's not really heaven, is it? It's just another earth, and we're going to have the same exact problems, Right? Right? If God's just like, ah, you know, whatever, hatred, murder, jealousy, all these things, like, you're, you're good, right? Like you did it, you went to church a few times, let's go, you know? Like if God just let that, we'll just have like this broken world in heaven. That's all that will happen. And so, and so by us running away from God and pursuing jealousy and pursuing wrath and anger and war and stealing and lies, all of these things. So by us pursuing that, we've run away from God and we've made it impossible for us to be in that relationship he's created us for. We've made it impossible. So the first thing that we need to know as Christians that's foundational is that God loves us and wants to be with us. And the second thing we need to realize is that Though the sin that we've committed has made it impossible for us to actually be with him. But the third and most hopeful thing that we must know that is foundational for Christians, the third thing that we must understand is that God, because he loves us, has created a way for us to be in perfect unity with him. He's created an amazing way for us to be in unity with him, for us to be in fellowship with him. See, all that sin that we've accumulated, I'm sorry if this sounds rudimentary to you, but I told you this is going to be foundational. All that sin that we've accumulated, all the baggage that we've accumulated over our life has brought us just one step further away from God. The Bible describes it as a drop that is put in the cup of wrath because God can't let sin go unpunished. He doesn't want to punish you, but he needs to punish sin somehow, right? He loves you, But the sin we've covered ourselves in has made it impossible. He needs to address that. He wouldn't be perfect if he didn't. And so this cross, guys, right here, this cross that Jesus hung on, it... it, we don't, we, like, guys, we, we don't just, like, worship an awkward, like, cross, right? That's like us worshiping an electric chair, right? It's creepy. It's weird. But it's a symbol that on that cross, Jesus said, okay, all that sin you've accumulated that God needs to punish, listen, I will take it from you, and I will be punished instead. It's, it, it said right here that he didn't, he didn't represent our sin. He became our sin. He was our sin, and God killed him in our place, And then he rose again and he said, listen, listen, I've worn your sin and your baggage and your shame and your lying and your deceit and your selfishness and your pride. I have worn that and I have killed that now, except this gift that I give you, which is called righteousness. God has said, take it, please take it. There's no catch. Take it. Take it a relationship with me. Take it right now. And for those of us that say yes to a relationship with Christ, they get to live with him now and forever. That's the gospel. You just heard it. So if you've never heard it before, that's, that's it, right? I can explain it in more detail with you after service if you desire, but that, that's the gospel. The gospel is that God created us for a relationship with us. 
that we rebelled and we ran away from him, even though he still loves us. And that he died so that he could bridge that separation for us. And on that cross, guys, and I, I want to I talk about this concept because it, I promise it all ties into being poor in spirit. <laughs> I'll, I'll bring it back, I promise. But how many of you read the book of Hosea? Anybody read the book of Hosea in here? Yeah, it's gnarly, huh? If you haven't read the book of Hosea, I'm just I'm gonna I'm gonna prep you really quick. Um, it's it's a book about a prostitute and a prophet, right? Um, we love to say here at Calvary Chapel, um, if you think the Bible's boring, it's most likely that you're boring. You know, um, <laughs> the Bible's not boring. You are. You know that's 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 you know because uh, God says, hey Hosea. You're, you're a prophet, right? He's like, yeah, God, I'll, I'll do whatever you say. He's like, you love me, right? Yeah, I love you. Hey, um, so I want you to marry a prostitute. God said this, right? So, so God said this. So next time you think that you're holier than thou and you're, you know, you're too holy to associate with um, you know, whatever like sinners you see around, just remember God is the one who hung out with tax collectors and dirty politicians and prostitutes, right? All right just remember that God is, I'm not saying go marry a prostitute, okay? This is descriptive, not prescriptive, right? This is a symbol, okay? So this isn't God's command to you to go marry a prostitute, okay? Just pastoral advice there. Okay. But, but, but God said, Hey, listen, I want you to go marry a prostitute. And so he obeys God and he marries a prostitute and this prostitute, her name is Gomer. Beautiful name, right? Gomer. Right. Um, and, and, and he marries Gomer and Gomer continually always leaves, like leaves for a night and comes back with all this stuff. Right, like she's like, and Hosea's like, where, where were you? Right, and she's like, she comes with gold and nice food, and a couple times it says that she did it for food. Right, so, so she's just like going out and she's selling her body still, even though she's married to Hosea, even though she's under the protection of Hosea, even though she has an amazing and wonderful husband that is doing his best to love her and to provide for her and give her children and all of these things, give her a decent life. She still just runs off to go get, to sleeps with men, to get pretty jewelry or to get money or to get nice food or to get ointment, right? All these precious perfumes and stuff. So she, she's just selling herself left and right. And Hosea keeps having to go back and get her and go back and get her. And she is eventually, Gomer, she's eventually having many, many kids with many other men. And Hosea has to name these, men, these, these kids and raise them. Right, And so you could picture right now Hosea, and he still remains with Gomer. He's still loving her. He's still providing for her. He's still, t- he's still here. Gomer eventually sells herself so much that she accidentally gets herself into slavery. She's sold her soul to so many men that she's eventually brought into slavery, and she's just paraded around with a bunch of other prostitutes and slaves. And she, most likely she has this, she's totally nude with just a number, a price, a price for her. So she's been reduced to a number. She's been reduced to whatever someone wants to sell her for. And you would think that Hosea at this point in time would just be like, I'm totally done with you. Right? You, you've left me too many times. You've done this to me. You've done that. You know what? This is, this is your doing. But instead, Hosea says, I'll buy her. 
I'll buy her. And he buys back his wife. This isn't prescriptive for us to go and marry prostitutes and then buy them, right? This is an image of what Christ has done for us. That he has desired to live in this loving relationship with us. That he has desired to love us and give us a life better than we've ever imagined before. But we keep selling ourselves to whatever simple sins that come our way. Whether it be money, chasing success in your job over anything else. You don't care who you burn. Relationships. Vice. Whatever it may be for you. We chase all these things as Gomer chased other men. And then we get so lost that there's no way we could actually help ourselves. We're slaves to what we have done to ourselves. And Jesus comes and he says, that is my bride. I will buy her. And the price was his life. The price was his life. The price was the cross. That's what it took to buy you. So listen to me. God sees you so worth loving and being in a relationship with that he, he thinks you are worth the blood of the creator of the universe. That's how, that's how worth it you are to God. That's how worth it you are to him. And so when Jesus uses the term poor in spirit, it's like Gomer this helplessness to purchase our own freedom. So when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, he means blessed are those like Gomer who are unable to purchase their own freedom, but have been purchased by Jesus and are now inheritors to the entire kingdom of God. That's the blessedness he's talking about. It is Only by Christ's love and generosity that we receive this type of blessing, guys. That's why I don't want to say that poor in spirit is simply humility. It isn't. Because humility can be mustered up by some sort of strength of will or good habit. You know what I mean? I can practice being humble, right? I can practice being humble. I can practice not thinking of myself so much. I can practice doing charitable things for other people. But that won't get me the kingdom of heaven. It is only by Christ's grace and riches that I receive the kingdom of heaven. By me being so poor that I'm unable to buy my freedom. And he's saying, that is my wife. That is my bride. And I will do anything it takes to get her back to me. That's what we are described as, as the church, guys. Don't, men, don't get all freaked out about that by being Jesus' wife, right? It's a, it's a very endearing thing, right? We are, we are his bride. We are his, we are his most precious creation. He loves us. In Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's a gift of God. The point of being poor in spirit is so that you can inherit the kingdom of heaven. Do you guys understand that? Only by being emptied of ourselves can we be filled with what Christ wants to give us. If we cannot understand this, we cannot be functional Christ followers. I don't care how religious you think you are. I don't care how moral you think you are. I don't care how much better you think you are than me because you probably are. 
You can compare yourself to whoever is around you. If you cannot understand this, you cannot be a functional follower of Christ. It is impossible. This verse is the dividing line between angry and judgmental churchgoers and faithful Christ followers. Do you guys know that? Because we, we know them, right? Angry, judgmental churchgoers, right? That's all we see. That's like Angela from the office, right? Some of you got that. That's the dividing line, guys. This, this sense of, oh, I'm moral, I'm good, I'm humble, I'm fine, or I have nothing but Christ, for some crazy reason, has decided to love me. That's the dividing line right there. If you're new to church or Christianity, this is the crossroads. You will either go of one or two directions. Maybe you'll ebb and flow out of the two, but I, I pray you don't. There's two directions to go the second you receive Christ. You can go this way, which is the, okay, so I think I got this thing down. I could take it from here. I'm a pretty decent person. I think I can figure this out. You can go that way. Or you can go the way of continually saying, I, when I look at Jesus, I I. I I, I feel like I have nothing compared to like all, all this morality, all these good deeds compared to what he has to give me. I, I must be poor because look at all the riches that he has. Being poor in spirit means realizing I am like Gomer. I'm unable to do anything for myself. I need, I need my groom to come and save me. I need Jesus to come. If you cannot understand that the kingdom of God is filled with those who have nothing to offer but a love for Jesus, then you will spend your life looking for ways to define what makes a good Christian. And what stinks, guys, and where I think a lot of denominational differences, what I think where a lot of people leave the church, where uh, a lot of people feel like um, they're, you know, they're better than the church or they're better than this or, or whatever. I, I, I think the dividing factor is that some people think they have more to offer than they actually do, you know? I have to come to terms with this as a pastor that especially as a young pastor, right? I have nothing to offer. And in Christ and in Christ alone do all the riches come from. Paul the Apostle spent the majority of his life, guys. Um, we learn this in Philippians chapter 2, 3, and 4. We, we, we learn that Paul the Apostle wrote most of the New Testament. He spent the majority of his life um, building up political and religious uh, exploit. He, he, he had this pedigree about him. He was one of the most influential men in Israel. He was a Pharisee. He was one of those guys wearing the robes, you know, and the things on their forehead, right? He was one of those guys. And he was so high up that he would actually persecute and kill the church, right? He was this very religious man. He was very religious. It's a, he kept the law, guys. Like, he kept the law. He was very moral. He would teach. He would do all of these things. And he spent the majority of his life t- trying to follow a bunch of rules and to be a super good person. Some of you might be like that. 
You spent so much of your life just trying to be good, just trying to be strong for other people, just trying to be the shoulder that people can cry on, right? Trying to be the rock that people can stand on. You've tried your entire life to be the sense of stability for an unstable world around you. You've tried so hard that somehow you feel like this broken pillar that's about to crumble at any moment. But if you crumble, the whole house crumbles. You might feel like that. No, if I waver, everything's going to fall apart around me. You've tried so hard to be a good person and you've built up this kingdom around you where everyone's dependent on you. Maybe you're the opposite. Maybe you have most of your life, you've glommed on to other people looking for satisfaction. You've latched on to people that might be more emotionally stable than you are. Right, And you've just been sucking them of all of their energy. You, you've existed in that type of relationships your entire life. And you've just been searching for stability. Paul spent the majority of his life building up this pedigree and this political exploit. And all, all a, a good name for himself. Success and power. Then he met Jesus. Then he met Jesus. And uh, he says this in Philippians chapter three. After he met Jesus, so he spent all of his life trying to just build up this amazing name for himself and trying to be the best religious person there was. And he said this, he said, but whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For this sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. What's very interesting, guys, is that he, he says, I've suffered the loss of these things and count them as rubbish. Rubbish, directly translated, means poop. I'm serious. That's what it is. I taught the junior hires that this morning. They'll never forget it. <laughs> they will never forget it. Paul says, whatever, whatever prowess I built up for myself, whatever name, whatever success, whatever money, whatever power I had in my name, the second I met Christ, it was all poop. Excrement. It didn't matter anymore. When I looked upon the holiness of Christ and the amazing riches that lied within him, nothing mattered. My good grades didn't matter. My successful job didn't matter. Being liked by everyone didn't matter. When I looked upon Christ and the blessings that he had to offer me, I count everything else as loss. I'll ditch it all. It doesn't matter. When you come face to face with God, you become hyper aware of how poor you really are. And it is the best feeling. Because we live in a society where poor means you're lazy, huh? Isn't that stupid? Don't you hate hearing people say that? Oh, they're just poor because they don't work hard enough. Don't you hate that? I hate it. I think it's stupid calling poor people lazy. And so we never want to associate with being poor, huh? Because we think somehow it means there's something wrong with us. 
it's not necessarily that something's wrong with you guys. It's that Christ is so much more incredibly beautiful than you could ever imagine. That's it. Poor in spirit isn't necessarily saying, oh, I'm the worst person. You know, like I hate self-depreciation like that. That's not real humility. Real humility, guys, is coming face to face with God and saying, whoa, this is far greater than anything I could ever imagine. Being poor in spirit is coming before God and realizing there's nothing you have. If you have the entire world but do not have God, you have nothing. I love what the the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18 says this. Um, Some of you might have heard this story before. Uh, Jesus told his parable to some that trusted in themselves that they were religious. So he's talking to the righteous people, the religious people. Um, He says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. Now, one thing you have to know is the tax collectors were the scum of the earth back then. They were people that couldn't make it on their own, so they had to, like, leech onto the Roman government and just take money from their fellow Jews, right? So, so that, those were the tax collectors. They, they were hated by everyone. So two people came up to a temple, the Pharisee and the tax collector, and the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, standing. Remember, he's standing. He said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But so, so, so this Pharisee, he's, God, thank you so much that you made me special. Thank you so much that I'm more blessed than other men. Thank you so much that I'm more successful and moral than other men. Lord, thank you so much that I'm not like this wretched tax collector that is coming to your temple to pray. Lord, I pray, God, that he would not dirty the floors of your holy temple. Right? But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says this, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. The kingdom of God, guys, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He means the kingdom of God is filled with people like this tax collector. People who are broken and need to be comforted by their God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Guys, blessed are those that mourn over the state of their heart. For Christ will comfort them. The people, um, like the man beating his chest. Christ will comfort them. And you may say, guys, you may say, okay, so like the takeaway here is that I got to hate myself, right? Or or the takeaway here is that, okay, I got to try to be more humble. You're already not getting it, right? So if you go out of these doors and your takeaway is, man, I just really got to be more humble of a person, right? I've totally done a bad job of teaching you because that's totally not what I mean. It isn't go out there and try to be more humble and hate your sin more. Yes, do those, but that's not the point of this passion, this this passage. Humility, guys, is not self-hatred. 
And how many of you guys have heard this? And I I know you've heard it maybe at least once if you've been here because I have been guilty of saying this. I've been, and I realized this while studying and going deeper and God's like, you say that a lot. Um, It's not true, (laughs) right? So I repent, but many of you guys have heard this um, where being humble, humility is not thinking low of yourself. It's just not thinking of yourself at all. How many of you guys have heard that? Humility is not thinking low of yourself. It's just not thinking of yourself and just thinking about others. Um, and the way I see that God treats his people and the way I see uh, God, God's closest friends and those who are intimate with him, the way I see them interacting with God and the most humble people, um, that's, that's, not, that's not what humility is. It's not that. Humility is looking at Jesus and being awakened by the reality that he is far more worthy of praise and more incredibly beautiful than you are. And that everything he has created is magnificent and worthy of honor, including yourself. I'm not trying to get all prosperity preacher on you and say that you are worthy of praise as God is worthy of praise, brother. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that. Being humble is being able to enjoy everything in the way that is meant to be enjoyed and appreciating everything the way it is meant to be appreciated. God wants you to look at everything he has made and everything he has done as beautiful. So he wants you to regard yourself in the same esteem that you would regard others. In the same way you would regard nature, in the same way you would regard a beautiful piece of art. He wants you to appreciate the beauty in everything in an unbiased way. Does that make sense? So the beauty I see in other people, I could also see in me because it's not giving glory to them or to me. It is Jesus that has made it all. It is looking at every single rich richness and every single treasure in this world and seeing it as treasure that is nothing but the grace from God. Meaning that it's, it's not that I think low of myself and it's not that I don't think of myself at all. It's that I regard everything, including myself, as something that has been a gift from heaven and that is to be glorifying to Christ. My life, other people's lives, everything else around me is meant to glorify Jesus. And it may start, guys, with this feeling of emptiness. It may start with this feeling of self-depreciation because you realize something when you meet face-to-face with Jesus. You realize just how sinful you are. You realize how imperfect you are face-to-face with Jesus. But what's amazing is that Jesus has this beautiful way of of taking you and your self-will and your pride and your dirtiness. He, He takes that. He brings you into his arms and he starts to slowly just wash away all of this gunk, all of this filth. And he gives you back your individuality the way it was supposed to be. Does that make sense? He wants to take your will with his right hand and give you back freedom with his left. And this is the beauty of the gospel. And this is the beauty of being poor in spirit. It is allowing God to empty us of ourselves. 
so that he might fill us with more purpose later on. And that's why it requires some mourning. It requires some brokenness, huh? It requires saying, man, I've run away from God for so long. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back um, wherever they are. And and, and guys, I, I, I want us... One thing I'm realizing, guys, with, with my life and with the way I approach God, I tend to think that everything around me is so incredibly important that it's worth all of my time, all of my effort, all of my exploits, every single part of resource. So I, I see this situation that has arise right in front of me. I have to give it everything that I've got. I see all of these things around me. I have to give it everything I got. Or sometimes, guys, there's so much around me. Jim Gaffigan said this. He said, have you ever had just so much to do in one day that you just take a nap, right? Sometimes there's just so much and I'm so overwhelmed that I, I, just, go to, I, just, I just fall asleep mentally. And so some of you might be in this state, guys. Some of you might be a part of this where you just feel like everything's falling apart. And instead of tricking yourself into thinking that it's not falling apart, acknowledge that it is. Instead of ignoring and trying to build up, right? So we either ignore all the tragedy that's happening in our lives, right? We either ignore all of it and pretend it's not happening or we look at it like it's the most important thing in the world and that we have to repair it somehow ourselves. However, however, what God has said is let it die. Let it break. Let it break. Let it fall apart so that I might restore it again. Does that make sense? Because guys, I'll come back down here. Um, Guys, That's what communion is. Communion is us to remember that God's body was broken and his blood was shed for us. That through the brokenness of one thing, life would start in another. And being poor in spirit and mourning is saying, I'm going to let this part of my life be broken. I'm going to let it feel poor. I'm going to mourn. I'm going to weep over this but also that once I give it all to Christ, he can repair it back up again. And when I give my life to him, when I give and surrender my will to him, everything might be restored again. And so we're going to worship tonight. We're going to take communion. Don't worry. If you don't want to take communion, you don't have to. The Bible says that if you take it with the wrong heart, it's very dangerous, right? So if, if, if that's not something you want to do, um, don't do it. But this is a way for us to remember the body that was broken and the blood that was shed. It's a way for us to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made and that we can be reminded continually um, that Jesus himself was the perfect example of what it meant to be poor in spirit, how he he sacrificed his self-will and he allowed things to be broken so that God would resurrect again. And so there's some things in your lives that need to die. There's some things in your lives that need to be crucified. As Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, he said... uh, or in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he said, uh, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. There's some parts of your lives, guys, that you need to acknowledge poor. You're poor, and you need to mourn over. You need to put them on the cross so that they might die and that Christ might give you life more abundantly again. 
And so tonight, let's do some work with Jesus. Let's, let's bring some burdens to the table. Let's worship him with passion. And let the posture of your worship reflect your heart. Amen. Lord, we love you. I just pray that we would uh, acknowledge um, how poor we are before you tonight, God, and that we would be able to um, come at your feet, Lord, and just be, be broken. There's some crazy stuff that some of us have done. There's been some running away that has taken place, but you're so madly in love with us that you don't care. <laughs> you just want us back. Thank you that as Hosea did with Gomer, that you bought us back, Lord. And that we ran away from you and we sold our souls to different things, Lord. But you died on the cross and you said you are so worth this. May we feel that tonight. May we feel that true humility does not mean we think low of ourselves. It doesn't mean we don't think of ourselves at all. It just means that we are totally occupied with thinking about Jesus. And that as we think about you and all that you've created, we see beauty in everything. We love you, Lord, and bless this night of worship. I pray that we would be able to worship with passion and with spirit and in truth. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen, guys.